We ended a paragraph into number 340 last time, but I think I'll read that paragraph again and then we'll go on. It is helpful, the Master said, to think of God as being forever with us right here and right now, ever in the present tense. Ask yourself at the same time, why are people so irresistibly drawn to living for rather than in the moment? In other words, to identify with the fleeting scenes and ever-fluctuating circumstances around them, changing events, endless streams of people, both enemies and friends. Unfortunately, it takes time to banish the mental hypnosis that all of this and that time itself is a reality, focusing one on the desire for ephemeral sense experiences. I spoke about that a little bit again last week, but I think I want to speak about it again. This distinction of rather living for rather than in the moment, I, it's, it's, I mean, it's just, he doesn't explain it at great length, but it, it, he says, ask yourself, why are people so irresistibly drawn to living for rather than in? I mean, it is ask yourself, why are we so irresistibly drawn? We're entertained, we're, um, we're challenged, we're frightened, we're trying to assuage some kind of inner restlessness. It's, it's astonishing when you begin to really focus on your inner reality to discover how much um, unsettled energy almost everyone carries within them. It's really a... Uh, it's a startling realization. There are many people who simply never allow themselves to be still long enough to ever really notice what consciousness itself is doing. That's one of the um, stories that they tell about what happens to people when they get close to death, when you can no longer, I mean really in the last weeks or days, depending on how you die, of course, but oftentimes what happens to a person if you're uh, dying dying more slowly is that you gradually lose the capacity to to do anything with your own body you you can't get out of bed you can't walk you can't go have food you can't drive your car you know just all those different things and and then you begin to understand how often there'll there'll be some movement uh, uncomfortable movement of inner consciousness and we'll go out and try to do something to assuage it either to, to ease our awareness, to distract us, um, to go watch a movie so that for a number of hours we're not aware, to go have a rich meal. Many people go drink wine or something like that that just changes our, that dulls our capacity or distracts us from having to feel the consciousness. And if we're living in the moment, we're just in our consciousness. We're not living for all the things that are going on around us. The other part of it, which just is the ever-changing nature of it. I know I, I tease some people sometimes when they present to me terrible challenges in their life. I, I just assure them that something will happen. And it's not that something good will happen. Often what happens will be worse. But something always happens. It's like, cre- like creation doesn't stop. No matter how worried or upset or how anxious... You are to make it go away or make it be different. It simply never does. Time marches on, as they say. And it marches on to the end. And we're all 
we're all just um, constantly dealing with it instead of dealing with our inner selves because it's extremely challenging to deal with your inner self and even on the spiritual path you have to be balanced you can't you can't just and and later on whether we get to it tonight or not but in a few segments later in this uh in this section uh master talks about how our perception of reality our our our, our concept of reality has to be grounded in our actual experience so so all of us experience this world as real i mean we're not we're not living i i'll speak for myself but i speak for most people that i know when we look at the material world we see the material world when we look at other people we see separate realities even though philosophically we may know that it's all a vibration of energy and we may, may know that we are really a unified consciousness our actual perception is different than that so it's it's a balancing act that we're always working with you know why are we so drawn well because we have that long standing commitment and that's actually how we perceive it we're not you know ramana maharshi at a certain point in his his very young life he had a a very sudden awakening and simply walked out of his house i believe when he was just a, a in his late teens and he just went to some very isolated place and sat down and started meditating and he just his perception he didn't perceive that he was alone that he was isolated that he was hungry that he was cold that he didn't have a future that he'd left his home he didn't see any of those things he saw the the single desire to bring his consciousness in line with the infinite and so he behaved accordingly and because it was his actual perception the universe supported him i mean individuals came to help him and i i'm i'm trying to remember if it, no, it was ramakrishna <coughs> maybe it was ramana maharshi and no, i can't remember which one it was but one of them went into a long samadhi for many months <coughs> and some devotee came and just felt as it his responsibility to keep that uh, sadhu's body alive and would insist on feeding him and would beat on his body and bring him back to consciousness enough so he would eat a little food otherwise he wouldn't have been able to survive and i can't remember which saint it was but the universe the universe sent to the yogi someone to make sure everything went right because he he was acting not as an affectation he wasn't acting from willpower he was acting because he looked at the world and that's what he saw <coughs> in ramana maharshi's life he was a student and he was studying and just he just realized when he was studying that it was completely pointless and so the next morning he walked out and it wasn't like vairagya where you just kind of like have this disinclination for it it just was suddenly untenable to him he just simply couldn't do it it didn't exist for him anymore and that's what we're we're trying to find and we we work at it by resisting the tendency to get all caught up in the flow and working as much as possible to keep uh, our calm connection and i mean certainly the experience of my life is whenever you make a little progress in that then god just sends you something bigger you know just it you have a certain magnetism to hold um a positive 
vibration inside and then God will send you a challenge that has magnetism that's a little bigger than your capacity to hold. And that's basically the, the back and forth between ourselves and superconsciousness that causes us to gradually inch forward. So there's nothing wrong with uh, having huge problems. And there's nothing wrong with failing to handle them properly. Because if they're not bigger than us, then they're not the right size. They have to be sufficiently bigger than us that they present a challenge to our accomplishment. Otherwise, we never grow. So it's a a mark of sincerity that... um, Life is not, an, an easy life is not a victorious one, is simply is how Yogananda put it. Okay. So the rest, reading on from there. Paramhansa Yogananda, in his profound explanation of the Rubaiyat, the quatrains of Omar Khayyam, explained one of them as signifying that many souls who appeared in material form at the dawn of the present day of Brahma, which is some unimaginably long period of time, will still be wandering in delusion at the end of that vast time period. Oh dear. This teaching is in Quatrain 53 of the translation by the English poet Edward Fitzgerald. That version reads, With earth's first clay they did the last man's need, and then of the last harvest sowed the seed. Yea, the first morning of creation wrote, what the last dawn of reckoning shall read. That's not, the meaning of that is not clear cut, but what Swami says is, with the earth, with the earth's first clay, they did the last man need. That's a K-N-E-A-D. And then of the last harvest sowed the seed. Yea, the first morning of creation wrote, what the last dawn of reckoning shall read. Oh dear. <laughs> Later on in here, Dr. Lewis asked Master if if you have to be manifested with every day of Brahma. I mean, like if it's just an endless into delusion and back again and reassuringly, Master said no. <clears throat> but the point is, our willpower and intention plays a great role. We can't just sit here. I remember a friend of mine, this was back in 1966, when we were all, when the little crowd that I was with, we were first studying Vivekananda. And, and he read that uh, our last thought determines, you know, how we progress in the astral world and that hearing is the last sound to go. So he actually was working it out that he would have like headphones on and, there would, and he would be playing the Om continuously. So that's what he would hear at the end. And then therefore he would um, be able to um, trick the Grim Reapers, how you might say that. <laughs> But of course, gradually we all understood that that was not going to work like that because you won't be able to be other than you are. I mean, at any moment you can never be other than you are. And the, the, the idea that you could put forward an image of who you are and actually fool Divine Mother and have her be tricked. But that's how the mind works because we think it's also outward if we can just... I mean, that's how people all the time, and they think if they can present the right appearance, and a lot of uh, training and success and all kinds of things is all about the right appearance and the right mannerisms and all these right things, and it, it doesn't train you 
to make your vibration right or to work with right magnetism or right thoughts. It just trains you to persuade others that you are what you're trying to be. And, you know, learning to behave is not a bad plan. It's a, it's a good idea to have good table manners and to know the customs of the country that you're in and, you know, just things like that. It, it helps create a refined impression. And, and a lack of external refinement is translated in most people's minds to a lack of internal refinement. Um, that's why uh, Swami always dressed very nicely and he, um, and Master scolded him when Swami was wearing a t-shirt with holes in it. Master said to him, you know, it's just, we, we're not that poor, we don't have to dress like that. Anandamoy Ma in India even said to her disciples, you know, we're just not that poor. You can You can make yourself have more dignity than that. But the real reality is is what we're longing for inside. And I don't exactly understand how if we're all created at the beginning of the day of Brahma, why we wouldn't all be equally motivated. You know, we would all have I just I don't I don't know how that would work. Why would why would some people remain infatuated with the world when others would see through the delusion and have a greater urge to move forward. It's not a mystery that I can even begin to answer, but Master says that. Some people are still wandering around. They're just fascinated. I guess all you can put it down to is every atom is dowered with individuality, so we each have this individual track to follow. The uh, The only thing we can think about is really our own role in the whole situation. Yes. Uh, I have no basis for defending this, but I've always instantly thought that the the individual who apparently straddles from one day of Brahma to nothing to the next day is totally unaware of it, and and his experience is probably he he hasn't got a clue as to what he's just done. And I don't have any reason to, I can't defend that, but I've always believed it. Well, that would be true, because if you were conscious of what you were doing, you would do something else. But the, what, what puzzles me is why awakening would be so uneven. But I have no answer, so there's nothing else to say. It's just one of those things that I just ponder. But why, are, why, are we, why do we all progress at different rates anyway? That's all I'm saying, too. Out of phase. Some people are out of phase. Yeah, out of phase, which means that, you know, some people are just, you know, following their own cycles and some people are following There's many, you know, when Master had his massive, his great samadhi, as they called it, in uh, 1948, quote, Divine Mother took him all over creation and showed him how she does it. So there, there was a part of it that's like, how could Master not know how she does it? But sort of maybe he didn't. And Lahiri Mahashaya in his journal just talks about all these different experiences that you can have. Now, if you think about it, it's ever new joy. So even when you're in Satchitananda, it's not a static state. It's an ever-changing reality. I mean, these are just words to me. But what words like this do for me? For me personally, maybe they can help others is they make me very humble and not at all didactic about the way things are because there's so many aspects of it that are completely mysterious that 
I haven't the, I haven't the slightest idea how and why it works. So it's, it just behooves one to, in, in all things, you know, to move with as much certainty as you can, but always realize that this world is much bigger than we know it to be. And not, not try to just get so fixed on our little piece of it. I was talking this morning. I'd had a conversation with the devotee and he was saying something about the work he was doing, but he was talking about it was just a question of having a personality that was somewhat introverted and therefore was an obstacle. But my response was like, so what? If, you're, if your job requires another way of expressing yourself, then that's what you're learning. I mean, you're learning another way of expressing ourselves. We, we have to be so careful not to decide who we are, especially not at a young age. That's what Master called psychological antiques. They just make a decision about their reality and then they defend it ever after. And, and we do have certain qualities about us, but many times we really don't have any idea who we are. We just, we're either persuaded or we, we absorb a personality from the people we grew up with and then we imagine that's, that's our personality. This is a, a small thing, but it was very interesting for me. I never felt that I, this in my 20s, I never felt that I had a very artistic sense visually. I mean, my art form is still words more than I don't paint or do anything like that. But I just also felt that I I just didn't have a, an artistic eye was the only way I could put it. And I was I was made responsible. I was responsible for seeing that the the path got published in 1977 when Swamiji went off to India for 7 months and then then uh, the the Pubble crew uh, which was mostly the women in the monastery at that point, we saw the book through production to printing. And I was the coordinator of that project. And, you know, a, bo- a book design is an artistic thing, and, and there were lots of artistic decisions that had to be made. And I was so persuaded that I didn't have an artistic eye that I I just said, well, you know, I, I, I'm not good at that, you have to do it. But I began to realize, actually, that I was actually quite good at it. I couldn't sit down and design something because I didn't know how. But when I was with, presented with the design, I was quite capable of understanding what was good and what was bad about it. But I had told everyone I wasn't good at it. So a few people who didn't want to listen to me made sure that I never got to have any input. And I realized just how odd that was. It was just a concept that I'd had. And by that time I was, well, I would have been 30. I mean, it wasn't. I wasn't 12. I was 30. And I just was convinced that I didn't have a good artistic eye. And lo and behold, I do. But I, I define myself as not having it. How many other qualities are there that we just are persistent in the habit? So it's, it's naturally true to say we have natural talents, we have natural inclinations, we can't, we're just talking about individuality that some souls aren't even motivated enough in a whole day of Brahma. So we have certainly movements of energy but one should be very careful not to define oneself just say even this is what I do now or this is what I'm inclined to or this has been my experience but who knows who we are Swamiji always use, often uses the example when a child grows up goes off to college sometimes they become somebody that the parents never knew because the opportunity just wasn't there for all of that to come out and even in our own incarnation, if the opportunity is not there, we don't know we have it. 
See, what Swami Kriyananda could do is he could ex- access anything because he didn't define himself by any limited, I'm going the, the periphery of the circle. He didn't define himself by anything on the periphery. He defined himself at the center. And so from the center, he was equidistant from any any possibility. So photography or painting or writing or singing or leading a community or being a hermit or being an extrovert, it was just, he just defined himself as the central energy. From a novel I read, uh, I wish I could remember the name of it, but it escapes me. Um, it was a, it was a beautiful spiritual novel about this these people who went to the Himalayas and did spiritual study. Um, House of Fulfillment, that's what it's called. It's a very nice book. House of Fulfillment, which is sort of an odd title. And I, the, I can't remember the name of the author. It might be Adams. But in any case, it's a very old book. It's lovely. Um, part One of the characters in the story is this woman who's, who becomes a very serious sadhaka and, and dedicates herself to spiritual practice. And through the power of her master, she attains a very high state of realization. In that high state of realization, she understands that she has to serve. Her next step of development is that she has to serve. And she's going to have to serve through creativity, through through creative work. But for a time in that superconscious state, she she doesn't know what form that service will take because she can see that she could be a poet, she could be a painter, um, you know, she could be a sculptor, she could be a scientist, because from the center she could see that they were all the same. They were all going to each one would be a manifestation of her elevated consciousness and the form that that elevated consciousness assumed was really not important. All that mattered was that she needed to express and therefore share. And in in the story she becomes a sculptor, but it it's in it's not it's not a it's not relevant. Now, you know I I I have glimpses of that, which is why a person who's successful in one field can often be very successful artistically in another. Um, I was reading a, an, the autobiography of Sarah Bernhardt. Sarah Bernhardt was a great actress from the 1800s into the 1900s, I believe. And uh, she was an extremely temperamental person and very dramatic and periodically she would just abandon the theater and she would go into her art studio and then she would passionately paint and then she would we would she would make these huge sculpture sculptors and then she would reconcile with her directors and she would go back into the theater <clears throat> but it was really just the ability to tune in and concentrate is what she had and the ability to translate her her feelings into some kind of expression now i mean sarah bernard is at least used to be, a, you know, a word that meant dramatic actress or drama queen also. But I, I don't know how. I've never seen her art. I never saw her act. So I don't know how, 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 how elevated she was, whether she was highly spiritual. But she'd certainly learned a lot about energy and magnetism and, and how to be who she was. Now, why did I bring all of that up? Oh, I was just talking about individuality and, and all the different changes that we make. All right, and flexibility there, and humility. That's where we started. I started by saying there's so much we don't understand that it keeps us humble. All right, number 341. 
a narrower and more immediate indication of the time it takes for the soul to find God may be seen from the following two stories. Norman, who was inclined to be moody, once lamented to the master, I don't think I have very good karma, sir. Remember this, the master responded immediately and very seriously. It takes very, very, very good karma even to want to know God. You know, I, we quote this to each other a lot sometimes because Swami put that story in the path also. But it's, you know, there's, there's so many ways in which our energy tries, energy tries to pull us down. Whether it's disappointments that we have in the world, whether people misunderstand us, whether they're unkind, whether we set aspirations for ourselves and consistently fail to meet them. I mean, it's just... Um, uh, it's very interesting, and I, I don't know which affirmation it is, whether it's integrity or something like that. It's one of our Sunday affirmations. But, but the words of it are, and it's about determination. I, again, I wish I knew the subject, but it says, My word is my bond, so also is my resolution. And I've always been struck every time we come to that one, and now it sticks in my mind. I'm, I'm pretty good at keeping my word, but my resolution is not always, does not always bind me. You know, uh, and I've, I've meditated a lot because I'm very definite about if I say I'll do something, I'll, I'll do it. I, I really try to keep my word. It's sort of like I'll keep my word to others. But when I, I give my word to myself, I don't feel bound by it. I feel like I have the freedom to change my mind. But I was, I was just, it, it's, really, it's really interesting to meditate. What if one's resolution was as binding as, what, as one's outward word? Because I know mine isn't. I'm often aspiring to do something and then the will to do it, the will to follow through just isn't there either. The resolution is given too lightly, or the willpower. I don't know. I can't even answer it. But I certainly don't follow that. But I know Swamiji, and and oftentimes um, I came down on the wrong side of this question more than once. He would decide that he was going to do something, and he just felt it was absolutely binding. And it was usually that he would say that he would finish a project by such and such, so a time he would accomplish a certain thing, and, and he just simply would do it, no matter what. When he was recording the television, the first series of television shows about the Bhagavad Gita in India, he was, I, he was, I, I was there for a piece of that recording, and he was, I served him breakfast, and I left for a little while, and I came back, and he, he was just sitting at the table like that with his hands. He had both his hands and his head was in his hands. And he hadn't touched his breakfast. And Swami was very... Uh, Master told him to eat three times a day. So he was... He, it was just like... A, it was a, uh, his guru's instruction to him. And so he would. So he, he rarely skipped a meal because of Master. He just would make sure that he had at least something. Um... But he hadn't touched his breakfast, and he had a whole morning of recording that was just about to start. He said, I don't have the energy to lift the spoon, is what he said. I just can't lift the spoon. 
So I tried to persuade him not to record the programs, which I thought was a good idea, because there was no reason. He didn't have to finish them. He could just extend another week. But he became very stern with me. He was very displeased that I was trying to weaken his will. He'd set his will to do it, and he was going to do it. And I was not being a friend by telling him that he didn't have to do it. He later, I put this in my book, of, the other book about Swami Kriyananda, as we have known him. Later he called Jyotish, and Jyotish knew what Swami wanted. He said, you can do it, sir. Master will help you. You can do it. And, and Swami said to Jyotish, I, I'm so grateful that you're supporting me in my resolution. He said, everyone here is telling me to rest. And it was just, it was so um, adharmic from his point of view. He'd made his resolution and it was binding on him. You don't now say it's uncomfortable and I think I won't do it, which is how I feel if I'm committed to someone else. But I easily let myself down. I mean, I'm, I'm by no means without willpower, but I certainly could not make that statement like Swami could make it, and I certainly don't live the way he lived. It just, if he said he would do it, he would do it, period. Even though he himself had set the condition. Once it was made, that was it. Very, very powerful. Very memorable example of that. Uh, Swami said that uh, for exa- it's really important to keep your resolution. He said, for example, if I say I'm going to go down to a CC and buy a newspaper, um, I'm going to do it. And then if somebody turns up with that very same paper and places it in front of him, he'll still go down and buy the newspaper. Right. Um, uh, let's see where we were. Where we were. Just a moment. Uh, oh yes, the reason I was saying that in relation to what Master said to Norman is that despite all of that, despite the fact that we may have an aspiration that we can't live up to, the mere fact that we understand that that's what we're supposed to be doing and that we're consciously aware that the spiritual path is the point of life, that self-realization is the goal, no matter how ineptly or inadequately we may feel at times, whether we're following it or not, you know, it, it, we're angels, and, and we are privileged, and you know, we, are, we are greatly loved by God. We have very, 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 very good karma. And whatever little bit is pulling away, even the mere fact that we're conscious that it's pulling us away and that we're trying to pull it back is indication of this, you know, this tremendous um, cycle of time to bring us to this understanding. So the, you know, the worst one on the spiritual path is still, you know, eons ahead of those who have yet to even wake up to the fact. I was when I was in Israel uh, in November of last year, uh, and we were at the Jordan River, and it was a high season, so there were many other people there besides us in November. And uh, on two sides, w- it, th- there's this place at the Jordan River, which is said to be the place where Jesus uh, was baptized by John. There's other places you can go, but that this is said to be the place. So it's very popular, and it's built, it's informal, but it's built with steps down to the water, and the river's not that big and it doesn't run very swiftly so it's 
easy to be baptized. And on both sides of us, there were people who were, who were doing full immersion baptism, and it was warm, and it was pleasant to do. We were just wading in the water, our group. Here was a group of uh, people from, there's a lot of people from Nigeria. Apparently the Nigerian government supports pilgrimages to Israel. I just learned this. So it's Nigerians over here and a bunch of Americans on this side. And in both places, as soon as somebody would be baptized, there would be this huge hue and cry of, you know, hallelujah, praise the Lord, cheering, clapping, you know, just woohooing, you know, just just big, lots of big noise. And we were doing a little purification ceremony in the middle. I seek purification by the grace of God, you know, and then a little blessing and silence. It was It was stark contrast. But what I realized is that they were trying to create an intense experience in the moment. Because after all, there they were in Israel being baptized where Jesus was baptized by John. It was a huge thing for them. And because I could hear their conversation, you know, they were, all of them, deeply dedicated to Jesus, specifically as my only Savior. And it was so important to them. But the only way they knew to create energy was outward. And so they had to be extremely outward because it was a big event. And I just thought, well, isn't that interesting? And their devotion was extremely sincere. But they have a long ways, they have a long road to travel before they recognize that that all that outward actually takes you away from where you're trying to go instead of into where you're trying to go. And just think how how long a cycle that cycle is. Yes. So this uh, th- uh, uh, this kind of situation uh, sort of throws me off often, um, and I try to uh, connect to uh, one of the things that Yogananda said that God sees the heart. Right. So even if I or someone else is, you know. Uh, oriented outwards and is not focused inwards and is seeking God in a, in a way which is probably going to take a very long time <laughs> to get to uh, Him. But if if the sincerity is there, if, if there is heart, then why would it take longer even if people are... Because, because you have to see through the illusion of this world. I mean, I, I mean, why does it take long? I mean, these are these are the questions that I can't answer. These are just the same questions. But we perceive reality. We perceive our bodies as real. We perceive the external world as real. We think the material world is real. I mean, those souls on, on both sides of us are far advanced from people who are not even seeking God at all. So, I mean, once you just accepted it, you, I mean, actually, we just felt this enormous love and and kinship and complete joy in their whole experience. There was no judgment on my part. I was just perceiving it, and I was trying to, I was just trying to get into their reality and understand what they were doing and what it felt like to be them. And so they were celebrating the fact that I'm saved by Jesus, which is a big step up from celebrating a whole lot of other things that you could be celebrating. But from their understanding of how to be in tune with Jesus, to come all the way around to sitting in silence and doing Kriya, 
There, there's just a lot of things they're going to have to do. And they're on their way. They've come to that. Now, whether it's a straight line from there to Kriya Yoga or whether they're going to have to do a lot of other things first, sometimes that kind of uh, external rigidity doesn't go in a straight line to inwardness. It just depends on who they are. Sometimes it's a, it's a, a, a bulwark against catastrophe against drug addiction or violence or anger or or many different things and sometimes it's just deeply sincere you know and they'll just and they'll just get deeper and deeper and gradually come to god realization very quickly persist on that level of sincerity and then probably that would be a natural step hello yeah i think they have to uh persist at that level of sincerity. No, of course. You know, you have to you have to understand discrimination is not judgment. The mere fact that I'm I'm not judging them at all. You know, I'm just observing, I'm trying to learn from them because the inclination to try to create intensity by outward exuberance isn't is a natural human quality. And the 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 capacity to feel deeply inwardly and not feel the necessity to get engaged in the world around you in order to feel anything is the whole point of the spiritual path at a certain point in 2012 um, you know starting about 2010 28 around in that period of time Swami's consciousness really began to shift he began to just let go of this world he didn't it wasn't so much that he that his state of realization changed is that he recognized that he just didn't have to stay engaged in this world in the same way and he be, and it was more like the force of his inner reality just pushed through so his whole way of relating began to change he became much much less engaged with the world around him whereas before when he was with people he would be very talkative he would be very engaged he would he would keep the whole room going he became very silent and he just very much less social just many things he began to change now just a second let me find the thought for a second i lost it oh yes and for many years at ananda many years starting in the early 70s he would often read us pg woodhouse stories it was just something that he did he would get us all together and he would open the book and he would read us these P.G. Woodhouse stories. The, he's a, the British humorist, and we just would laugh, and he would laugh, and he would imitate the characters, and it just, he had, on Christmas Eve, that's what we would do. He was just teaching us to have good, clean fun, because you know, we didn't really know how to have you know, good, clean fun. We just weren't trained, so he taught us. And, and when they were making the movie, Finding Happiness, in 2012, the um, director wanted to film Swamiji reading a P.G. Woodhouse story because it was a, such an integral part of Ananda life. So they set up this uh, satsang in the living room and it, the, the, you know, the, it, it was more artistically arranged than it would have been arranged in a normal thing. And Swami actually read the story and they filmed some of it and we all laughed and had a great time. It was lots of fun. None of it ever made it into the movie, I don't think. Maybe some of, just some of the seen but none of the reading but afterwards Swami just said very seriously that's the last time I'll do that 
And then he said, too outward, too outward. Too much laughing diminishes my sense of bliss. And so it's just sort of, you just reach the point where it's, you're not going up by doing that, you're going down. And how do you arrive at that? You just get there step by step, and it has to be natural. And I'm, I'm anticipating, because I read it already this evening, just where Master said it has to be authentic. You can't just sort of be piously above this world when really your vibration is not above this world. You're trying to make an outward impression. Or, one which is even very more common, one is trying to suppress one's natural inclination, thinking that suppression is a shortcut to transcendence. And this is where the Gita's phrase, suppression avails you nothing. All it does is it just pushes the energy down, it concentrates it, So when it finally does burst out, it's completely out of proportion and it's unconnected to any cause and you just have a a complete mess on your hands because you you can't do it that way. You have to respond appropriately. You have to be honest enough and sensitive enough to know who you actually are and then you have to respond accordingly. And that, that in itself is half the challenge of the spiritual path. It was easier at Ananda in the first 15 or 20 years because there was, let me think how to say it. Swami's relationship to us was extremely casual without much form. And so there was no, he was very natural with us and we were very natural with him. It was only uh, into the 80s, in, in first after he came back from Assisi, they treated him differently in Assisi because they, they, they'd met him at a different stage of life and Italians understand saints. And they, they live from the heart, they perceived his saintliness, and they treated him like a saint. And we were just treating him like, you know, like, like him. And a lot of that began to shift. So then this way of relating began to develop. And as Ananda formalized, people had ways of relating. So people would look and then start relating that way. And it, it was inevitable and on a certain level also a little helpful because it gave people an idea of what what it might be like but it was also unfortunate because then people could decide how to behave instead of just behaving you know just being themselves it it was inevitable there was no way to save it and we we do our best to be as natural as possible but it's all the, all of those things are are we have very 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 good karma so we don't have to pretend we can just be what we are. And it's fine. We have very good karma and God reads the heart. And if this is who we are, this is who we are. Let's just live it and trust that sooner or later that soul power will cause us to change. You know, many things that, that we and I do, there's no discipline involved. It's just the way that I am. When you know, I stopped, I, well, I never drank, hardly ever, just a tiny bit, when, you know, in my, by the time I was 20, I was finished with all of that. Um, but it's, it's not like I have to discipline myself. I'm a vegetarian, I eat very healthy foods, you know, I, I like to live in refined environments. I'm just not tempted. Um, I'm tempted by many other things, but they're just more internal. It's not my world. But other people, you have to discipline yourself until your tastes change till your vibration changes and then that vibration doesn't match you anymore. That's what Kriya does. 
that's why once you start on the path of actually doing Kriya, you just find in so many ways that so many things that you thought were yourself are just not yourself at all. You just discover whole other realities, which is what I was saying at the beginning. You discover talents and personality traits and inclinations and just don't, I, I remember when I was when I first came to Ananda, I uh, I had uh, these dark rim glasses and I wore I had, I had long hair and I wore my hair in braids and I just had a very um, tight. I mean, I've always been tightly wound, but I was really tightly wound. And three or four or five years later, I certainly relaxed a lot from that. Um, and I and my appearance had also changed somewhat. I changed my hair. I changed my glasses and. That first summer when I was there running the retreat kitchen, this couple who lived in New York had spent a couple of weeks at the retreat and they were in the kitchen a lot because that's where a lot of karma yogis spent their time. They had to wash a lot of dishes. We didn't have dishwashers. So we had hung out together quite a lot. A few years later, Swami went to New York City for a program and I traveled with him. And we at least saw that couple. We may have even stayed at their house. By then, my name had changed. Swami had changed my name in the middle. And when uh, when we met, they acted as if they were meeting me for the first time. And I said, no, actually, we, you know, when you were at the village, at the retreat, you spent time, we were in the kitchen together. No, they said that was someone else. I said, well, actually, no, it was me. And, they, and then they said again, that, no, that was someone else. <laughs> And I think I made them say it three times before I I heard it. I said, yeah, that was someone else. Of course it was someone else. (laughs) You know, yesterday was someone else. And, And instead of holding on to all that we've been, we should say, yeah, that was yesterday. Today I'm someone else. I mean, every moment. We live in the moment. And if you're in the moment, it's not the previous one. It's it's all ever new. It, it's a wholly different way, and that's that's what we're trying to accomplish. Okay. Now going on with this one, Swami says, "How easy it is for even one de- desire once fulfilled to lead to others. They come in an unending procession and tempt man to seek his fulfillment outwardly through the senses." One may wander as long as he elects to do so. How many mistakes get committed on the way, all of which end in broken dreams? How long it takes for an individual to realize that what he was always seeking was his own self, the God-self within? As As the Master answered me when I asked him how long I had been his disciple, Master said, it has been a long time, that's all I'll say. Yet it needn't take any time at all. As he said also to the disciples, I don't want to hear any of you moaning in despair, when will I find God? As if your own answer to that question were never. You have him already. You need only to live in that consciousness. Swami, there was this man who was living in our community at the village, and he had this really strong desire to go to India. And Swami didn't really think it was a good idea for him. I don't know what the details were exactly why, but he really just didn't think it was in his spiritual best interest. He thought that the man would do much better just to stay at the village and, you know, work as he was working and just grow, he could grow deeper where he was rather than going around India. And the man was quite determined. 
And he said to Swamiji, but I have such a strong desire to go to India. I'll never be content until I, until I do it. And Swami just looked at him. I've never heard Swami say this to anyone else. He said, you have millions of desires. He said, if you start now to fulfill them, there literally will be no end to it. Which was a very strong answer to people saying, I feel to do this, I really want to do this, I'm restless to do it. Because one leads to another. You, you get started here and then there's another country that looks interesting and then you meet people over there and then you want to be with them and then you fall in love with somebody but that doesn't work out and it just goes on and on and on like that and, and each little curve brings with it its whole, its whole next cycle and pretty soon you have a new center and a new ring around it. I mean, this is how, this is how we spend many, many lifetimes. There was a young man at Ananda village and he, you know, people were getting married and meeting their partners. This was all during our 20s there. And this man, Swami, Swami thought very highly of him and had a lot of um, respect for, for his potential. And he got, engaged, got involved with this woman. And you know, we were naive enough. Oh, isn't it nice? You know, they're in love. And Swami said to one of, one of the man's friends, happened to be a woman, but he said, he said I, Swami said, I can't speak to him because it would be too strong if it came from me. And if he's going to marry this woman, I don't want there to be a, a block between us. And she would, of course, be very angry with me but I, I would like you <laughs> to... I mean, Swami often did that. He would send one of us to deliver a message that would, be easy, that would be easier for a person to accept or reject. And also, subtleties like that. Like if he was going to take a position and he thought it pretty likely that the person might not take it, he needed to preserve the relationship. And if he's in love with this woman and Swami doesn't want him to marry her, then it's going to be a hard, hard time after he marries her. And what if he tells her she's going to be really mad at him? But Swami's just words were really simple. He said, oh, so-and-so's with so-and-so. Isn't it nice? He said, she won't help his sadhana. That was just all he said. She won't help his sadhana. And the fact of the matter is she wanted home and family. And they, you know, she took him away. They had bunches of children. Like 30 years later, he wandered through here. And he just looked worn out. You know, he'd done it. He'd had a long career in some corporation and raised the family and now was taking care of the grandchildren. And, but how did that happen? I, I, you can't say it wasn't his destiny. You can't say, I mean, I can't say anything at all. But I just looked at him and I remembered him back then and I remembered what Swami had hoped for. But it couldn't be stopped. It had to, it had to go on like this. There's a story in Swami Kriyananda, as, as I have known him, about an, another uh, man who uh, was going to go down a path that Swami knew wasn't going to work out. And the, the person was set. You know, a lot of times you come to Swami, people come to Swami, I've done it too. And you only really want one answer from him. You're pretending that you actually really want to know what he thinks, but you really just want him to agree with you. And he was enormously sensitive to that. And he would not... Um, that's why that strong statement to that man about not going to India. Swami usually wouldn't insist like that. If you weren't listening, 
there was no point in trying to overpower your will because all if you if you only succeeded in suppressing your will that wouldn't do anything if you weren't magnetized to the point of view yourself and only did it because he told you to but didn't really embrace it yourself it would actually work out worse for you but so this man was quite set in his direction and Swami knew that and so in the end Swami expressed a few cautions but then the man said well you you know um, please give me your blessing on what I'm about to do and Swami said oh I always bless you I always bless you and so the man came out and said Swami blesses my decision and Swami said to me no actually (laughs) I blessed him you know, extreme, extreme nuance. Swami was so truthful. You had to listen really carefully, but he was very careful because he did not bless the decision. He just blessed the person. And it proved disastrous. But Swami had preserved the friendship, so when it proved disastrous, he could just... And, you know, disaster is just somewhere. I don't know whether it's in this book or that one. The new book or that one. No, it's in the new book. I, I write this whole thing about Swami and friendship, and he says... You know, his he just wants us, his, his only intention is to help us to be in tune. And a mistake is just putting yourself in a situation where that is harder to do. Not impossible, just more difficult. So Swami's just always trying to encur- always tried to encourage us to put ourselves in a situation where it would be easier to be in tune. Like when he said about that woman, she won't help him with his sadhana. Well, that didn't mean that he couldn't have succeeded or maintained his sadhana. The fact that he showed up here all that time later means that he never broke his tie with Master and he, he still really wanted it. But he put himself in a situation where it was harder to keep up. And so that just sets you back a little. It, nothing happens except it's harder and you either fall back a little or don't go forward as much as you might. And then you're standing where you're standing and then you just keep going. Because we have very, very, very good karma. And so sooner or later, it will work itself out. And, and that's, you, you balance both sides of it. And so you, you do your best and leave the rest in God's hands. Okay, let's take a short break, okay? I'm going to just tell a story about something that's happening in my life right now, which is just a little bit of a sign about how the mind perceives the world according to how it wants to see it. Um, this when this is being recorded it's February 2019 uh, and this is the season of the year in which our um, K-8 through school does a, its big theater production which we put all 70 children on stage for an original script of an hour and a half or so that always deals with some great soul so it's this huge it's a, it, it has been a huge part of our curriculum and over eight years of going to school here or nine years, the children will, you know, be in the play about the Buddha or about Yogananda or Dalai Lama or George Washington Carver. Um, anyway, so just to give you a context. And somewhere along the line, I, I, at different times, I've helped do the costumes. It's my hobby. It's one of my realizations that I, I do have a visual sense and I can do it. And I like children. It's my hobby is what I finally figured out. I like fabric, I like theater, and I like children but I don't really get to do any of those as a profession, but I get to do them as a hobby. But it's immensely um, complicated because all 70 children are on stage and many of them have more than one role. 
and I'd six or six weeks or so, and it's just it's it's pretty much of a flat out run. And earlier, I used to do all the sewing myself, so literally during that period of time, I never rested. I mean, I slept, but I could never sit down because I needed every waking minute in order to just simply get the thing done. I then I quit for a few years, and when I went back, now we hire someone to sew, and I just organize it, which has made it more rational, but nonetheless, I become completely obsessed. The actual word is crazed. I become crazed. And when I was first doing it, I actually thought that everybody else was also interested in what I was doing. And so I would explain things to them, like how the white shirts were a little flat, but then I took a little bit of the fabric from the robe, and I put it around here, and I put it around here, and now when I look at it, it's like just perfect. And, you know, I would just on and on. And so it got to be that the people who loved me felt that they could tell me that they really didn't care, really. <laughs> and so, it, but I, I had just talked about it so much, so it became kind of a joke. So each year it would sort of come up, because I did, I, we were counting now, this is about the eighth time I've done a play. And so we were in some, uh, this satsang group that we've been having for years of our leadership group which is a very informal. And somehow or another, I said a little bit about the costumes, or maybe they were in racks, you know, like on the other side of the room, because if I'm sewing at home, they're just the whole, we're having the satsang here, and the whole cast thing is over there, and I'm staring at them the whole time. And so they all started teasing me about my obsession and how completely bored they were hearing about this and really how they just the minutia of it just really was not didn't matter at all and it was good natured and everybody was laughing and it went on for a couple of minutes while they they had a a lot of laughter at my expense and after they finished after they finished um my subconscious mind registered only that they were all talking about the school play and the costumes. And I started to tell them something more about it. And I was really like almost beginning to really tell them because they, they were talking about costumes. I would talk about costumes. And I just completely wiped out the whole middle part because my subconscious just wanted them to care. So I thought they did. But just before I dived in, it, it occurred to me, but it was a fascinating experience to see how um, reason follows feeling. I was just, I was biased in favor of this particular outcome, and I just almost persuaded myself. I mean, you could have imagined, I would just start talking, and they would have just said, you know, like, what? You know, were you not listening? Oh, yeah, you were all just talking about costumes. Have you ever been with people? Who will just you'll just say something and they'll their their next remark will be an absolute non sequitur, but on the same subject, but none of the connecting links were there, which is how we can wander for an entire day of Brahma, because the subconscious mind just keeps feeding us whatever it is that we want to know. Uh, it's it, I mean it's it's interesting to me how God, for me at least in my life from time to time has given me some complete odd experience that uh, tunes me into 
a reality that I would never have understood otherwise. There was another one which is, was much more serious, but when we were uh, engaged in, when we were being sued in the, the, the second lawsuit that we were subject to in the 90s, and that was the character assassination lawsuit in which people accused Swamiji of egregious abuse of power, of sexuality, of money. And it was just, you name it, we were, we were accused. And it was, it was really a wild and ridiculous experience. And it didn't turn out very well, partly because the whole thing was so preposterous. We never took it seriously. We didn't understand that, that madness can get traction. So madness got traction. And during part of the cycle, I, I was representing us I mean, I was the client representative for some depositions in which people were telling stories about things that just weren't true because they were describing realities that I had first-hand knowledge of, that I had lived through with them. And so it was perfectly obvious to me. I knew the facts. I have a very sharp mind, and I knew the facts. And I began to wonder whether people knew they were lying or whether they had just switched. You know, in, in in the court of law, memory is a dubious thing. And, and past a certain point in time, what people say they remember, I, I, I can't give you the chapter and verse on this, but at a certain point, the mere fact that you remember that it happened that way is not binding in court because memory is so subjective. So w- what people also do is that maybe they did something that they're ashamed of and they will just flip the situation so that somebody else did something. Something shameful happened, but it wasn't I who did it, it was you. And so you can even pass a lie detector test because you have just told yourself. And, and it, you know, I watched people do that. And as I said, because I had firsthand knowledge of this because it was a civil war, so to speak. So every, we knew everybody. But then I was telling a story during that period of time, and it wasn't anything of consequence or embarrassing or anything like that. It was a conversation of two different, two people. And I was, I was several minutes into the story when I suddenly realized I had switched the characters. I had switched myself with someone else. And I was reciting accurately, as I recall, the conversation and the events, but I had just switched it. And I was behaving like I was somebody else and they were me in... And it, but it was one of those things like, oh, okay, I get it. You just, reality is subjective, and w- how do we ever know? We're, you know we, we have a certain clarity that can be verified, but people, w- what it was, the, the reason those things would happen to me is so that I would have compassion. So I would just understand that, you know, we are, we are weak, and we are subject to forces that we cannot always control. Because I, I have been under the delusion that you can just think everything out, and and God's job with me is to show me the limits of the mind, basically, and just realize that the mind is just a part of who you are, and it's not really everything. When Kamala Silva, the Master's disciple got into her last year she developed serious dementia and for a period of time we took care of her at Ananda Village and when uh, I guess I'd been away and she had moved in and so Swamiji was telling me 
I said, uh, Swamiji, she's lost her mind. And Swamiji said, it's just her mind, Asha. And I just repeated it. Swamiji, she's lost her mind. I mean, it was just so hard for me. And he said, again, Asha, it's just her mind. And it, I, it wasn't until I met her and I realized that all she'd lost was her mind. <laughs> because she was so intact. And her heart and her spirit was so intact. The fact that she didn't know where she was and thought her stuffed animal was a, a living animal and thought the view out the window was Colorado, you know, those were just trivial because she'd lost her mind. It's, it's a very... Um, all of these things, all of these... All, these are all the richnesses that gradually make one very loving and accepting of oneself and everyone else because we're just kind of all muddling along together and the grace of God will get us out of it sooner or later and we have very, very, very good karma because here we are. And this is where, you know, when Master also says it needn't take any time at all for us to realize God because it's already there. And it is true. And when, when you realize God, realize is such a wonderful word. Because when you realize something, no, nothing new has been added. Ex- the only thing that's been added is your understanding of what was already happening. That's why self-realization, realization is such a, a rich and perfect word. It's not self, uh, you know, it's not an accomplishment. <clears throat> nothing is given to you. You just say, oh yeah, that's what was going on. I just didn't really know it. I, I didn't realize that I was a puppet on a string this whole time. <laughs> I just couldn't see. <clears throat> when I was in high school, uh, there was an extremely talented man who was uh, one of my fellow students. And uh, he went on to actually have an award-winning career in the theater. <coughs> his, name was <clears throat> his name is John Beatty. I don't know if he's still on the planet. And he, 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 was, he loved theater. And he, his parents really supported all his hobbies. He was wonderfully talented. And he made marionettes. You know, these big marionettes, puppets on strings. Beautiful characters with clothes and faces. I mean, he was really talented. And uh, he and I used to do shows for children. And we would wear black, and we would just walk out running the puppets like this. We didn't, we didn't have, we weren't behind the stage. We just would walk out running the puppets. And the first time we were doing it, I said, John, I mean, the kids are just going to see us. No, they won't, he said. <laughs> and he was absolutely right. The kids were so fascinated by the puppets, and we were their voices, but they were so fascinated by the puppets, and there was the puppet doing its thing, and then they would look up at us, and they would converse with us sometimes, but totally, they just totally believed it. It, because it, it seemed to be happening. It was such a, I mean, decades later, it was such a story for me that they just saw what they wanted to see. It didn't serve them to see the strings. It was much more, the story was that these were living people having their experiences. And someday we just notice that we're actually just marionettes on the string and that Divine Mother's been pulling the strings and it's her voice through us, her thoughts, all of it, but we just don't see it till we see it. And then when we do, you can't see anything else. I mean, that's where you see people just doing things that are so hurtful to them, to themselves. 
And it's just that, that, that you hear remarkable stories like that, like Corey and Betsy Tenboom in uh, the concentration camp. And Betsy say, saying to Corey, the older sister saying to the younger, you know, we have to pray for these people. They're so unhappy. And Betsy, and Corey thought Betsy meant the other inmates. And Betsy actually meant the guards. Because the other inmates were innocent. They were just unhappy. But the guards were actually perpetrating this terrible injustice and they were going to have to suffer so much from it. It just was so painful to her because they were doing something that was going to cause them so much grief. Just, and it wasn't, it wasn't an affectation on her part. She just looked at them and saw what was going to happen. Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And and he just they didn't. And he wanted. He was interceding. He was taking some of their karma too. It's the mind. You just don't know what to do with it. Okay. Now here's the last one, which I'll probably just read. It doesn't require commentary. Number three forty-two. The master often told this story to illustrate how the soul wanders on the long journey of countless incarnations seeking perfect fulfillment. There was a man who loved God and had achieved a little spiritual advancement, but who also had a few worldly desires left to fulfill. At the end of his life, an angel appeared to him and asked, Is there anything you still want? Yes, the man said. All my life I've been weak, thin, and unwell. I would like in my next life to have a strong, healthy body. In his next life, he was given a a strong, large, and healthy body. He was poor, however, and found it difficult to keep that robust body properly fed. At last, still hungry, he lay dying. The angel appeared to him again and asked, Is there anything more you desire? Yes, he replied. For my next life, I would like a strong, healthy body and also a healthy bank account. Well... The next time he had a strong, healthy body and was also wealthy. In time, however, he began to grieve that he had no one with whom to share his good fortune. When death came, the angel asked, Is there anything else? Yes, please. Next time I would like to be strong, healthy, and wealthy, and also to have a good woman for a wife. Well, in the next life he was given all those blessings. His wife, too, was a good woman. Unfortunately, she died in her youth. For the rest of his days, he grieved at that loss. He worshipped her gloves, her shoes, and other memorabilia that were precious to him. As he lay dying of grief, the angel appeared to him again and said, What now? Next time, said the man, I would like to be strong, healthy, and wealthy, and also to have a good wife who lives a long time. Are you sure you've covered everything? demanded the angel. Yes, I'm certain. That's everything this time. Well, in his next life, he had all those things, including a good wife who lived a long time. The trouble was, she lived too long. As he grew older, he became infatuated with his beautiful young secretary, to the point where finally he left his good wife for that girl. As for the girl... All she wanted was his money. When she got her hands on it, she ran away with a much younger man. At last, as the man lay dying, 
the angel again appeared to him and demanded, Well, what is it this time? Nothing, the man cried. Nothing ever again. I've learned my lesson. I see that in every fulfillment there is a catch. From now on, whether I'm rich or poor, healthy or unhealthy, married or single, whether here on this earth or in the astral plane, I want only my divine beloved. Wherever God is, there alone lies perfection. (laughs) Such a wonderful story. (laughs) Okay. I think that's it. (laughs) So we went from 340 to 342.